Thank you for tuning in to Right Size Security with Simon Gibson and Steve Ginsberg. If you like this episode, please check out the other episodes in this series and go to gigaohm.com to find more of Simon and Steve's research and insights. Welcome to Right Size Security, the podcast where we discuss all manner of infosec from enterprise security to practical security every business can use all the way to end user security. Your hosts for Right Size Security are me, Simon Gibson, longtime CISO. And me, Steve Ginsberg, former head of operations and CIO. For this episode of Right Size Security, we're going to discuss deception technology, what it is and how it evolves, and we'll look at it from a CISO's perspective. Why do you want it? What are the cost benefits to it? And what would you consider about it ahead of other projects? And we're going to have a chance to discuss it with a CIO uh, and get their perspective, including their concerns. All right. Welcome back. Um, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we usually start off with uh, current events, but they sort of have evolved beyond just being current events. They're more just events uh, that had kind of topical things that happen, maybe wisdom. I don't know what we should call this section, but but it isn't just current events. You had a couple of ideas, Steve. Sure. So I thought maybe this week uh, we would talk a little bit about, uh, I'd seen a piece on human factors research with automobiles. And it's kind of a a very interesting study, I think, where they're looking uh, in order to make the car respond better, they're actually putting sensors in the car, looking at what is the driver doing? Is the driver distracted? Where are their eyes focused? That kind of thing. So the car can react with that context in mind. And it just reminded me of the kind of greater issue of security and privacy. So, you know, if auto manufacturers are going to move forward and have all that information, in addition to the additional, the other information that they have, you know, it really expands the palette. Uh, And it reminded me too, also that there's that whole issue of security and privacy. And maybe you want to talk a little bit about your take on that line. Cause I know when, you know, we were talking about security programs, sometimes I or others would conflate the two. Yeah. It's, uh, I know some privacy experts, real privacy experts. And the, the difference is that, you know, I am nowhere near qualified to explain what real privacy is. I can tell you what security is, and then you can sort of, you can use that as a guide to know that this, oh, he's not talking about privacy because this is just truly about security. You know, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, what somebody said, privacy is the new liberty. And that, you know, you, the thing about privacy, I think that sticks with me the most when I consider privacy concerns around InfoSec, it has to do with, um, you know, Pieces of data that may not seem important now, but in their totality can somehow be used in a way that could be malicious, you know? And I think there's a there's a bunch of stories about IBM and the first census that was ever taken and that that census in, you know, early 1900s, well, nobody thought was a big deal in Europe until Hitler came along and said, oh, well, who put Jewish on the census? And that was one of the concerns, right? At the time, that wasn't uh, a problem. And it just turned out to be one. And I think when people consider giving up information, they say, well, I don't have anything to worry about. You know, I just eh, let them read my email. I don't have any, anything. Let's, you don't have anything right now. You know, it isn't, you know, you don't know where that's going to be in five years and what the totality of that is in, in you know, with everything. Yeah, no, it's interesting how the context can change. And then I think, you know, when I think about it, I think a little bit about information can be secure, but if the privacy is being shared, then it's not. Yeah. And information can be kept private, but if it's not secure and it's leaking out, then it won't be private for long kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, right? yeah, and true. And atomic pieces of information on their own may not give you any anything, but enough, you know, you can sort of extrapolate enough with a few keywords. I think I read that if you know a birth date and a zip code, you can almost certainly put together who that person is. Just some several small pieces of information. Interesting. It's enough, right, that there's just that that combination is not going to be yep. common. 
Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a whole discipline of data deduplication. I think it's got an academic name too, and people do old PhDs in it and stuff. But I know that from a security and privacy factor though, you know, the car was an interesting one. I just read about a pizza company called, I think it's Zoomy and they, uh, I hope I got the name right. They, um, uh, or basically look where humans are and order pizza from using different types of data and where cars go by. Then they park a truck, robots make the pizza when you order it on the app. And then cars show up and pick up the pizzas and deliver them, whether they're like Ubers or Lyfts or whatever. And they just place these robot, you know, pizza making trucks in strategic locations where they know people are. That's cool. It's like a regional program essentially, right? Yeah. 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 So they can just get the pizzas closest to the, you know, it's really a question of that like last mile, but it's like the last few blocks problem. All right, so let's get on uh, to deception technology. What is it and um, how did it evolve on right size security? All right, so welcome back. Uh, first, let's discuss this technology. You know, what what is it? Um, and I I have some experience with it. In fact, the GigaOM uh, podcast you're listening to will link uh, to the to the landscape paper that we're doing about it. So we're talking to six or something, five or six companies that that sell deception technology. And what it really it sort of arose from honeypots, which you know, and I think we were talking earlier, Steve. You know, the philosophy was this is a simple machine that you deploy in your network, and no one ever logs into it. And if anyone does there's a problem on your network because no one should have, no one should be getting onto that machine. Um, and so te deception technology started out as, you know, that philosophically, can we deploy machines around our network using, you know, the same theory that no one should be logging into it. And I think it also came from companies that were breached uh, and they had active attacks on the network and they didn't want to stop it immediately. They wanted to kind of watch and see what the attackers were doing to figure out who they were and get some attribution. And so they deployed machines that had no purpose other than to get the attackers on and then from there watch their behavior. So I think that that was kind of the combination, I think. That yeah, that's up. really interesting. So it's not just a decoy. You can also use it to basically extend out the attack while you've cleaned it off the machines that are important. Exactly. And, and, I, and this is a really sort of interesting, you know, sort of part of information security, when you deploy a countermeasure against an attack, you've now demonstrated to the attacker that not only do you see them, but you've just demonstrated some of your capabilities. And, uh, you know, a smart attacker, you know, will eventually start to probe you for your capabilities or what you can and can't do. So it's just, it's this sort of, if you see an attack, it isn't always necessarily the best thing to stop it right at once. You want to think about what corner you're painting the attacker into. Right. And in terms of sort of showing your cards, uh, that could go either way. Like on the one hand, if you show a card that you might want to play later, uh, then you might not be able to play it later. On the other hand, maybe uh, if I, we've talked about in the past, attackers look at kind of the value of the attack uh, versus the effort to gain. Uh, if they see a lot of measures, defensive measures, they might consider you a less um, easy place to stay and attack. And, and hopefully, you know, you're listening to this and you have that capability, but for sure, if you don't, you might just be, you know, opening yourself up for more, right. When you deploy one, you know, a simple block on a, on a, you know, of an IP address or something, um, when we're, you know, it's easy enough for them to come back if there are lots of back doors that you may not have capabilities to defend against. Um, you know, I've definitely had to make that decision before. Do we block this or do we not block this? Because we're getting probed, but if we block it, we show we know we're getting probed and we sort of tip our hand that we're watching this. We're still building out some capabilities. I don't want to do that for another month or two until we have the capabilities to, to really to defend against it. So it's definitely should be part of your decision process. I think the, the, the important differentiation, and I, I feel that I've heard this from other people too, is 
well, what's the difference between a honeypot and this deception technology? And, and really, a lot of that is in the deployment. Um, you know, it's really in the, the how the honeypot is able to, or, or sorry, the deception technology is able to connect into your network and through reading uh, packet data and net flows and looking at communication flows, start to figure out what segments uh, have servers on them and what segments have endpoints and that kind of stuff. So uh, for someone who's rolling this out, how do they get started? How, how, how would they go through that? That, you know, a lot of the deployment is, is getting a configuration and a baseline. And it's, you know, I think for the most part, these things deploy as OVAs or as cloud instances. And, you know, they need network traffic. So there's some sort of a sensor or a tap or span. And it's looking at flows and packets on your ingress and egress and then on subnets, uh, ideally server subnets. And it starts to understand, you know, these are this is a, a, a range of IPs and there's five domain controllers and some file and print. Uh, this is a segment that has web servers. This is a segment that has, you know, code repositories, whatever your environment looks like. And the technology, after sort of watching your network for a few hours, comes back and says, well, here's what I think you ought to deploy uh, in a virtual sense. And, and maybe it's, you know, four domain controllers, four web servers in different segments, a couple of, you know, code repositories, different you know, uh, conduits to SaaS stuff, you know, VPNs to AWS, those kinds of things. It does an analysis and then it comes back and it tells you what segment a uh, machine should go on. That's really cool. And so then you kind of go through the interactive interface at some level and sort of pick and choose where you want to deploy these false agents, if you will. Yeah, or, these decoys. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. And it's just a matter of cabling this, you know, this head end onto a VLAN that makes sense. And then just virtual IPs get assigned to it. It can either, you know, obviously configure it manually, or it can probably just get DHCP and it comes up and it looks and smells and feels like a domain controller or a web, you know, a web machine. Yeah. And, and another nice kind of, you know, again, for companies thinking about this kind of thing, once all this starts to happen, generally these vendors also have, um, uh, interactive sort of, uh, built in, uh, uh, sort of threat technology or, um, you know, they're looking at your traffic. They have a ton of other customers and they have threat intelligence and they're kind of bumping up what your traffic is doing with other ones. And so there's a, you know, yep. they're, they're like another, another layer in the sort of threat intel world. For, yeah. For so your, you can leverage that anonymous share where you're getting, you're getting intelligence about what other things could be in play at the time, or at least types of signature. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We, we actually heard a really good story about a company that had uh, uh, this technology deployed. And all of a sudden, one of the decoy hosts began beaconing out to an IP address. They checked the IP address. It had no reputation score, none positive or negative. It just was an IP on the internet. And they looked at, this, at the decoy machine and saw clearly this was malware and this was obviously C2 communication. Um, and when they took the IP address and dropped it in the rest of their firewall and proxy logs, they found 35 other machines also bound for this C2. Wow. Um, so it, it did really prove itself out. It found, you know, it found some malware and an IP address. And I think there's always this assumption that, you know, for security, you can just block the bad parts of the internet and then everything is fine. And, you know, I, we were, you know, as we were kind of getting ready for this, the problem is there that a, it's just so vast. You probably can speak to the vastness of it. The, the internet is large. For it, those it's who are. humongous. <laughs> yes. And, and the internet is evolving. It's, it's, you know, yeah. what's good today may be bad tomorrow. And, you know, What's bad today may be good tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, a perfect example of that is, you know, at least early instinct would be, you know, there's enough attacks coming from certain regions in the world that you might say, well, maybe we should block all traffic to that region, for example, at that level. And then you realize, 
Well, you have employees who are international folks. They may be reading news there or have family there. And so, you know, at the very beginning, that falls apart, for example. Oh, yeah, right? for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for it, it could be doing business. It could be, like you said, it could be family stuff. It's just, you know, um, it's it's very difficult to just make arbitrary sort of decisions about what you allow and don't allow, uh, yeah. unless something is proven bad. The, the problem there, though, is that those things that are bad can become good again. So we had a, a bank or sorry, an issuance site that issued financial data about, uh, you know, different banks. And it, it had a it had a malware in a directory and we had to block it. And uh, people were yelling, well, we need to get this information to do our jobs. And we said, well, we know there's malware. We can't let you go off the corporate network. Uh uh, we actually couldn't tell them at the time why we knew because we got it off of a mailing list. We understood got this sort of intel uh, kind of quietly. And and when it did make the news, which it did, it actually ended up kind of being a big news story. Uh, when it did actually get into the news, we were able to sort of explain it. But it, it's really difficult when you have people just trying to get their jobs done to say you can't go somewhere. You know, people want to know. Right. So you'd be better off to navigate the traffic with a more fine tooth comb. Yeah. These are the, this is the traffic I can allow and should allow and want to allow. And this is the traffic. Yeah. I really, based on the flows themselves, not, and, not greater. And my sense is yeah. this technology is trying to sort of help you vet that out. And that it, you know, I, I think there, you know, there are plenty of concerns. I think I, I certainly had the concern of, you know, just complicated networks being complicated enough without adding stuff that isn't real to them. You know, that for me was always one of my, my, my bigger concerns that we have enough trouble keeping known machines up and running and healthy. Right. Uh, right. It seems like there could be a decent amount of kind of operational impact for, for this. So our systems administrator is going to be patching these new instances and, and right. probably they should, right, if they're up and running. But can they take on that? Our network administrator is going to be able to deal with the additional traffic uh, there. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that is one of the differentiators in this technology from honeypots is that these these head, these consoles, these, you know, the sort of controlling apparatus for the deception technology sort of manages all that. So you don't need to put them in your monitoring and you don't need to patch them. I think that they, they keep the VMs at, at a state that they, that they ought to be at. And that, you know, part of the, the reason you buy this technology is so that your team doesn't have to manage those, those, those decoy hosts. What platforms do they run? Are they Windows, Linux? I think other, they're all, yep, Mac, they're others, all yeah. of the above. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so they can be sort of any version of rel or you know it, it could be any version of linux it could be any version of windows it could be and you think some of these companies provide those as images where they're basically running their own full build systems for them then so they're fully maintained well, images or so i think the point of the host is that if somebody logs into them they're convincing enough that they're going to want to try and drop some malware and yep. and see if the malware will run um, and i'm sure that that is just as much an arms race uh as were uh you know um detonation chambers when malware would see a detonation chamber, it could tell that it was in a VM and it wouldn't launch. Right. Um, so I'm sure that there is that same type of problems. And, I, you know, again, it isn't always VMs. There are definitely instances of this technology that deploy as full systems. Um, so it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a machine, but it's running full, a full OS. Um, and then, I mean, keeping the patch, remember, the, the, the goal is that no one's logging into them. And no one's doing anything on them unless it's something bad. So I, I think it, it's there's probably a you know uh, if I look at most organizations there's usually a, you know anywhere between a couple of months and a couple of years lag on on patches between running systems. Right, and I guess given their purpose to be the low hanging fruit, it's maybe okay if their patch level is lower in a lot of cases. It, right? Yeah, probably it, it's actually okay if someone 
attacks in there. That's kind of their purpose. Right? Yeah. yeah. And it's running and listening on stuff on more ports and, you know, it's accepting, you know, challenge response authentication. It's doing, you know what I mean? It's doing, it's running stuff that, that would look attractive. Um, you know, I think th there's, you know, the other point of that too is, is how to, you know, getting people onto them. That's another sort of differentiator in this technology, which is that the, the machines that are accessing legitimate systems all have information about those legitimate systems on them. There's all sorts of artifacts about the, 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 the domain controller and who has logged in and what, you know, what passwords are in memory and what's in the registry about the domain and, you know, what the printers are and all those sorts of things. So this technology uh, also leverages the ability to deploy what they call breadcrumbs on endpoint systems. So that if you manage to get your machine client-sided somehow, you, you know, you go to a website or you open a doc and you end up client-sided, when the attacker is analyzing your machine to go figure out where the good stuff is in the network, uh, these, uh, this technology will uh, help point the attacker to these decoy machines. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So it, it really could be a big time sink for an attacker where not only are they first level breaking into the wrong machines, essentially the ones that the enterprise wants them to break into as opposed to the important ones. But then there can be a second level, as you're saying, which is then they're pointing to a domain controller, which also isn't the prized domain controller. It's also a farce and, you know, the yeah. artificial yeah. uh, decoy, essentially. Yeah. And, and the goal is then that as soon as you start to see that traffic, and again, in our example of the customer that, you know, that found the C2 IP address beaconing from a decoy, uh, that was clearly, you know, running malware and then found legitimate infections throughout their network. And I think that's really where these guys are trying to add some value. I think it's the, you know, where Honeypot was a single machine you deploy or a couple of machines you deploy for research. And there's a few different kind of ways of thinking about Honeypot technology, just plain, simple, let it stand. There's ones that are, you're just trying to get research, ones you're trying to collect artifacts on, one you want to see what, it, you know, exactly people are doing and how long can you keep them there. Um, I think this technology, uh, just is, is sort of, it's the natural evolution of it. That's really cool. Um, in addition to operational impact, are there other risks that you view associated with this? We sort of talked earlier a little bit about the, the, the concern that if you start deploying capabilities, you move your attacker around. And, and this is one of those where if you have a bunch of machines that look like they're not patched listening on things, you know, are you kind of you know, are there sharks in the water and you're throwing chum in it? Like, is that is that a risk you're taking by suddenly making yourself look more attractive to these attackers? Because now, you know, an overzealous administrator maybe opens a firewall port on a DMZ and just, you know, can we get anybody on these machines? Or or maybe it's just, you know, a machine, a, a subnet of machines that would have been patched and running perfectly happy. And somebody scans that subnet and one of these machines pops up and an attacker that may have decided not to attack you sees these things. And now you've sort of lured them in. And so I I suppose that's a risk. I think you want to be careful with that. Right. There's a little careful what you wish for in that regard. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a good way to put it. So how does this fit into an existing program? You know, it seems like you've got topics about integration and, you know, interaction with other things. You know, one question I would have would be, how does it interact with a bug bounty program, for example? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, that would actually be really, I think, super difficult to try and spread those two apart. Um, I think, you know, for the most part, the bug bounty programs I've seen are around specific applications, their application center, a web app or, a, you know, an embedded app or you know, something like that. I, I, you know, if you are doing a bug bounty program on a, on a LAN with decoys, you definitely have to out, put those out of scope, I think, because it, it wouldn't, it would be just a, I think mayhem. Um, 
I, I do think though, you know, in terms of like, you know, strain and additional sort of time and work to run these things, I think the technology, apart from the deployment of the um, breadcrumbs on the, you know, user endpoints, this, this technology is very sort of um, benign. It's very kind of, it runs alongside. It's not, it's not super in line. I mean, yes, you look at packets, maybe on ingress and egress, uh, I think you could probably do those just as well off of a span and a tap. You don't necessarily need to be in line. Um, so the, the, I think there's a pretty, for, for the potential benefit of this, it's pretty low touch and, and pretty safe. Again, the, you know, when you're pushing stuff to endpoints and changing registry settings and, and maybe even logging into endpoint to leave credentials in memory, those things, y- you probably need a certain level of skill and expertise. But I do know that these vendors are aware of that and they're working to make that as easy as possible. I think that the two two things that are you know that stood out for me, uh, it, one of them is is definitely um, that question that boards ask all the time of the CISO. And if you're the CISO and you've ever been to the board, the, one of the first things you always get is, "Are we secure?" And that's you know you you can't say no because you know you were not. You know there's problems, but you got you got to say something because you're the CISO. That's your job. Or, you know, like if you're a fireman and somebody asks you, "Did the building burn down?" You got to say, "Well." You know, you have to have an answer, right? And I think the problem with that is it's the wrong question. Is it, are we secure? Isn't asking the right question. And, you know, the right question for boards is, what are we doing about our security? What are our top five risks? You know, how much are we spending on them? Um, do we have the right people? Do we have the right technology? Are we measuring them right? How are we reporting on? Those are all, because there's always going to be risks. And I think that perhaps this technology can help answer that because you, you can say empirically, I'm measuring all these things. I'm measuring, like, I know this is, we have these five risks. Maybe it's endpoints, servers, people, whatever your risks are, and we're measuring them. Here's how we're spending and deploying resources to make them better. But then what about that unknown unknown, right? And so I think this maybe lets you answer that question. Well, we can't say for sure we have a breach on the network, but if you know if we did, we'd probably catch it with one of these decoys. It gives us a better chance. Uh, I think the problem that these te- these vendors will also face, though, is the same thing that uh, detonation chambers did, where the adversary will be sophisticated enough to tell a decoy from a legitimate machine and and not fall for that. And I think so. That's but but again, I think that's a well understood and known problem. And I think that the vendors that we're looking at in this space are working on that. And I think they probably have have it solved. You know, we've talked about in this podcast that one of the things we're working through is how does a CISO present to CIO? And really, today's discussion is a great example of that. So Simon has been working on this topic. And of course, I'm familiar with Honeypops, for example, but I was not at all up to date uh, on this topic. And, you know, as we've discussed it uh, today, especially, you know, what I hear is something that if I'm in my CIO shoes, I would say this is a great idea, right? So you're giving hackers a, a chance to to attack your network in a way that might not be damaging to you. Uh, so in, in that, you're certainly allowing your network team or your security team to see where might they be coming in, hopefully a, as sacrificial lambs. Hopefully these are the these are the decoys that are found first before your real equipment. Yep. We've got some real world examples that say this will happen in some cases, and then that's going to let you know not only hey, there's an attacker potential, but actually you've already got attacks going on and you didn't see them in the network noise, uh, in the transactional noise of a busy system. And I know that's always a big challenge. Um, it seems like something that uh, scales very well. It sounds like the kind of thing where a program could start small on low impact. We know security teams are always really busy. Uh, network teams, systems teams are very busy. So if it interacts with them and they need to be involved at all to kind of get something approved and running, um, it could start small with low impact. 
But then I'm even envisioning from our discussion that for some networks, it might make sense to really deploy large numbers of these to really make it so that an attacker now, if they want to hack your network effectively, they've got to get on twice as many machines or something, you know, towards that scale. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, think about the the possibilities with IPv6 and, you know, you could have, you know, potentially millions of these of of decoys running. So that's, I guess that's it, Steve, for another uh, episode of Right Size. It sounds like uh, deception technology, again, from what I can tell, is is, is probably worthwhile in the enterprise. And, and from a CIO perspective, it, it doesn't, you know, and from the work I've done with it, it doesn't look like it's going to add a lot of overhead to your team. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the we talked about the guidelines of operational impact, and I think that's something to really, you know, that, that, that would still be on my mind to consider as it gets rolled out and look for that carefully. But uh, otherwise, it sounds really good. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed this episode of Right Size Security, please check out the other episodes in this series. Simon's recent report for GigaOM Research focuses on advanced behavioral analytics and threat detection. To find out more about next-generation information security, download the single report or subscribe to GigaOM Research for future-forward advice on data-driven technologies, operations, and business strategies.